Hey everyone, this is Gans, your host, and welcome to another episode of the Seed Table Podcast, where we try to make sense of what's going on in European technology. My guest today is Anirudh Pai, host of the Conservative Curious Podcast and founder of Dreams of Electric Sheep, a newsletter that covers the intersection of tech, history, and economics. I'm warning you, this conversation with Annie is anything but typical. We cover Annie's unorthodox career progression, how being a child of immigrants shaped his views, why he's an avid student of history and biographies, creation and accumulation of power, the balance between consuming information and creating meaningful content, content moderation and privacy, why the one public internet is going to disappear, journey versus destination, and Annie's biggest source of optimism right now. Annie is a voracious reader, a fascinating thinker, and an extremely fun guest. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hey Annie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm a big fan of your newsletter. So uh, yeah, thank you for joining me. No, thank, great to be on. So thanks to this podcast, I've learned how to do a lot of research. I'm essentially, I, I think I became a professional stalker. Uh, most of my guests have a very linear, very legible career progression, and, but not you. you. You look from the outside, extremely interesting but extremely illegible. So you do a bunch of things, including writing and a podcast. Have you sure. thought about this? It's like, is this on purpose? And like, that's the first part of the question. And the second part is like, what's your story then? Yeah, I guess I'll just answer them back to back. So yeah, I agree. I think from the outside, it doesn't look quite clear. It's quite opaque. But at the same time, I think my thesis of when I was just starting out was there's that you know, old Zen Buddhist line of if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear, it doesn't make a sound. And for me, I always take that to be, of course not. Like these things are very reflexive. And so it all really depends on who is around to hear what you're doing. And that doesn't mean to just like put out a load of garbage and, you know, to be like a huckster and, you know, try to scam people. But I was looking at the landscape and I was like, all the things that I want to read about and write about, no one is talking about. And I knew that there were so many other people in my boat. But as someone who is just a massive reader and as somebody who has just been consuming content for most of my life, I was like, you know, if I don't do this stuff now, then when am I going to do it? And I think that at least with now this gets to the second part of your question, which is like, you know, what is the story then? So I think that illuminates a lot of it where I grew up in the Bay Area, but I was getting very tired of this like one sided discourse. And it got to the point where, you know, in school, people would always like complain about, oh, when I graduate school, so when I graduate university, that they would go to Facebook, which many of them did, and just make like 200k a year. And I was like, that's not life. You know, that is, that's a very coastal American concept that was still very strange to me. I mean, my parents immigrated here in a time when everything was super chaotic, but just through the good faith of America, of the Valley, you could do a lot of amazing stuff, which they did. But as I look to the future and on the distant horizon, I see that there's a storm. And in that storm, I was like, you know, the next 20 years will look very different from the past 20 years. And in a myriad of ways, that's been proven true. I mean, when I had that idea, it was like, you know, pre-2016. And then I was like, what can I do to kind of give me that light that I was so much seeking? And 
I was like, you know, I'm just going to go to a place that I can go and meet the most people and the people from all these different backgrounds. Cause I thought the American university system was really fraying at the edges, which it was right. As it still is. And so I did my degree in England and that was probably one of the best experiences of my life so far, just because, I mean, you probably know this as well as, as well as I do, but it's way more egalitarian at the university system than the U S and what I always say is that you want to go to England for school, but go to America to work because you see that the pros of both cultures are exemplified in those two areas. That's a pretty good framework. Uh, why England versus let's say, I don't know, Australia. Yeah. Whatever. That's a, that's a Spain. Point. That's a good point. So, you know, Winston Churchill was always one of my heroes. And I think in that sense, I actually had, I think coming in very different perceptions as to what my experience would be. And people don't know this, but they were like, they were just because they think I'm that type of person that I was planning this out since I was like 12 or whatever, which I didn't. I had been to London once and I really enjoyed it. And only a very certain part of London, I was like, oh, you know, all of the UK must be like this, which, you know, I quickly realized was not the case. But yeah, I applied, got into a few places and Warwick University uh, stood out to me as an underdog. And I always empathize with myself and see myself as an underdog. So that ended up being another one of the best decisions I made, which is that if I'd been to an Oxford school, I think my views of the world would have been very different than being in a place where so much change was happening uh, because Warwick was the foundation for accelerationism, for chaos theory, for economics in a lot of ways, mechanism design. And those are all the things that just captured my mind as a kid growing up. And the podcast and you know the writing that I do, I think is largely influenced by the great thinkers and writers at Warwick who came before me. Speaking of worldviews, how do you think being the child of immigrants shaped your worldview? Oh man, I think there's almost no way that it didn't because you start to see everything from that lens, right? Like what really matters? And I think that's also why the Valley is such a unique place and why so many people from Europe, as you know, try to, at least even my friends when I was working in London and at school, would do everything to come to the Valley because to them, I thought, they thought that the destination was all that mattered. They didn't realize it was the journey of getting there. And I would always see that and I would laugh because it's like, the person you become when you're on the journey is what you want. You don't actually care about, it's not the destination. It is not anything about the valley per se. It's about the fact that how much people had to give up to be here, right? And that to me is the most important part. And I think, you know, growing up in that, and then I was, you know, I actually thought that I would be in England and working in England after I graduated. And so to have that perceived view of myself as an immigrant was like super challenging because I went to school when I was 17. I was lucky to skip years of school, but in that time, I, yeah, was just really trying to figure it out, right? Because I came from quite a very different area from the rest of the world into an area where there's just so much chaos and, you know, it's, it's very hard to adapt, right? But it lets you kind of take that risk and be like, you know, maybe things aren't as risky as you think. The, the funny thing, I'm not sure if funny is the right word, but the interesting thing is that you got out of a place where everyone is trying to get into which is the valley. Yeah. Let's start diving into, you, you mentioned the newsletter and the podcast. So mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of your newsletter. Uh, Thanks. Uh, Dreams, Dreams of Electric Sheep. And your Substack sub tag, tagline reads something like, history doesn't repeat, it rhymes. And by interweaving tech, history, and economics, I am to accelerate our way back to the future. And 
I read that. I, I, I didn't learn that from memory. I'm not that smart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think history rhymes? Yeah, I think there are a lot of lessons that people, they have this line that you can overdetermine things where you can attribute the cause and effect relationship to one thing when it's in reality a lot of things. So I wouldn't say that it repeats because, you know, it is not clear how much of like Napoleon's time exactly repeats and, you know, the French Revolution to Napoleon exactly repeats to what we're seeing today, for example. But the lessons that you can take away seem to be just a constant, right? And that's why I say it rhymes, because it has that, like, echo. And that echo still keeps shooting into the future again and again. And after a while, you're like, huh, you know, this seems awfully familiar of things that were happening in, like, Victorian England, in, you know, Chile in the 60s, and all those things where these stories keep coming back to haunt people. And it's quite clear that if you don't understand them, you're at a disadvantage, I think. So two sort of two separate rabbit holes we could get into. So yeah. the first one <laughs> is, why do you think people assume this linearity that history actually repeats itself? And that's the people who read history. But why do you, so that's one side. And the other one is, for the ones who don't read history, like why do you think they underestimate the importance of what happened before? Yeah, I've spoken about this with a few people and people, there's a great book called The Fourth Turning about how history is actually just a series of cyclical shifts. I don't know if you've read it, but amazing book, um, how the Romans would have this line and word in Latin called the seculum, which would basically kind of come down to human life. And in a human life, you go through these four different shifts. And the fourth turning is obviously the shift of revolution and of enormous change, which happens as the authors proclaim once every seculum, once every human life. And I think people just don't want to believe that. Like, I actually think that people, they cannot see that these things have some sort of human underpinning to them. Like, obviously, you have the universe, and that's all controlled by these physical laws. But Earth is obviously a very human place. And I think our actions like shape things way after we're gone, right? And in that light, I, yeah, I think people who don't read history, also they seem to think that we're so arrogant that this time is different. Hmm. Like they just can't believe that these things are not that different, that, you know, Trump is not the harbinger of the apocalypse as many want to proclaim, right? It's like, no, history has seen stuff like this happen. Like it's not, you know, this is not the first time we're going through any of this stuff, right? Arguably, you could say that this time is actually entirely the same. And if it wasn't, that would be weird. Like as you see what happens across the world, this is exactly the type of reaction that you'd expect. So actually in hindsight, not much has been different. I mean, like higher inequality, lower median wages, people protest. I mean, that's just been even in Roman empire that happened, like throughout the middle ages that happened, I mean, even in, even in the Middle East, China, like all these things are very familiar. So to me, it's almost like being back at home in a way. <laughs> Which it's sort of the, the reality of cycles, right? Right. And even all the people that I respected, you know, growing up, like, you know, before I talked about Napoleon, but he was a huge reader of history. In fact, he actually hated historians because he was like, they're always shaped by the great people and events of their time. But I think his line was actually that like, to read history is to like go into a great library and just get trapped by the vastitude of all the information that's there because everyone is lying to you all the time, right? 
So I think that's also why some of the greatest investors are always, always avid readers of history because that's effectively their job, <laughs> like to see who's lying to you, right? <laughs> Munger, Dalio, I mean, the list goes on. Icon, like they just, it's like piecing together like a detective, the clues that make sense. Who else do you admire? Oh man, there's a friend and I, we were going to do a post on this, but uh, the list could go on. I mean, Umberto Echo, he was probably, I don't know if you read his stuff, obviously, but some stuff. Yeah. I think just the lesson I could learn from Echo is the, I mean, he coined the anti-library, right? I mean, that itself just makes him like one of the greatest ever, but they, he wrote a book with this other film theorist called uh, Jean Lecar about the end of the book. And it's those conversations that like, you know, the, like the one you and I are having that just encompass everything, right? When you talk about the book, it's like it, the vastness of their knowledge just makes you wonder, like, there is just so much more I could be learning in this lifetime if I tried. And I was lucky to read his stuff very early on. I mean, God, the list could go on. Like, you know, that idea of like, you know, finding out who else people read has, I think, done a lot for me. I'll probably put together a list so that I don't just come across incomplete. But yeah, across a variety of disciplines. I mean, Feynman, I mean, like in investing, I read all the Munger stuff when I was growing up that saved me a lot, but mainly biographies. Like I think it was really, I've basically read every notable biography there is, I think. <laughs> let me rephrase that, the question or let me, let me put sure. some constraints around it. So I, I was actually asked this question last weekend and I was going to save it to the end, but if you could have dinner with any three people, dead or alive, who, who would it be and why? Ooh, that's an interesting one because it always depends on my mood, I think, of what I'm feeling. You know, I think, wow, I think one would be Talleyrand. I'd really love to talk to that guy. I just think he was, like in any age, he just would have been like making noise. Who else? Actually, I could just probably, I could just probably give you my... Uh, uh, French three, which which I could do this for all different regions. I mean, I would I'd probably do their Talleyrand, Napoleon, and Mitterrand, just to just to get the variety of of those areas. But you know, even in philosophy, I would think about it like you know, I really love to get Nietzsche, Socrates, and Kierkegaard in the same room, because I think so. What this is actually something that we thought about a lot with conservative curious, because when it comes down to it, you're not looking at people by themselves. Like you can't look at people just as individual objects, but as really functions of a whole, right? And like, how much do you play? It's, it's like that uh, superposition, like how much impact do you play in the eventual outcome, right? Just like, you know, the act of just observing changes the nature of events. And I see with this, like, you know, if I'm an observer, I just wonder how much would be different and how much would be the same. And that to me is always like, the the question that I dabble with, like, you know, would I just being there change what would have been a great conversation into a greater conversation or would it have been a great conversation anyway? And I would have just been an interloper. What about you though? Any, who would have been your three? Well, first, I think that you being on that conversation would definitely change things because conversation is like a complex system, right? So that's changing the setting or the time of the day would completely change the conversation. So adding, adding an extra participant, like that would blow things uh, right. up. So for me, it, it really depends on, on the mode, as you said, and, and yeah. what I'm going through uh, during that time. 
I want I have one person that it's fixed. That's Marcus Aurelius, like the uh, Roman emperor. So that's fixed. And right now, I, I think I would probably add Lyndon Johnson and hmm. Hitler, like something like that. So yeah, the Johnson I could definitely see. I could definitely see the appeal. That was the case for me too. I think a few years ago, but. Yeah, you know, actually, how do I think about it? Like another one that I'd just really love to get into the mind to would be like Henry Kissinger. I think that would be, that would be, I, I'm still trying, you know, it'd be great if I could meet him before, before he, I think he's hitting a hundred now, but you know, before that ends, just to get the, see that vitality of life, I think. Speaking yeah. of, of, of Kissinger and another one that I'd love to sort of talk to is uh, Lee Kuan Yew, like hmm. Singapore's prime minister. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm just fascinated by creation, I guess. And, mm-hmm. and, and creation has a lot of things to do with that. There's also the, I don't know, the accumulation of power, for instance, in the case of Lyndon Johnson, for instance, or, or right. Hitler. I don't know, but it's, it's such, it's such an open question. Like there are so many rabbit holes you could get. Right. For me, you know, another theory. I think the, the most interesting geopolitical theory would probably be Alexander the Great, Napoleon, and Hitler, right? Like in every yeah. era, you have yeah. the, yeah, just to see, just to see how that would play out. And because they all learned from each other, right? I mean, uh, Hitler famously went to Napoleon's tomb, and I think he took his son's ashes from Austria to Paris again, something like that. But they all, you know, that's what I mean by the cyclical part of history, right? I mean, they were all avid readers, and they all paid attention to I mean, in Napoleon's time, he took a lot of lessons from Caesar, very famously. And even Alexander the Great, you know, studied all the works of his previous ancestors and the philosophical underpinnings of the time from Aristotle. You mentioned something about consuming and absorbing knowledge. So aren't you scared that you you won't be able to absorb all the knowledge that's out there to read all the great books that should be read because there's no way you can read them all yeah, you're gonna I try think, but <laughs> yeah well you know i've changed my views on that a lot because i think last year i was like i'm gonna just do a book every week and i managed to pull that off but i think there was even one month where i did 13 and i was just like you know dying from but because i i was compelled to do it it's not like i had a new year's resolution it was just like oh i think i could do this and then events just manifested and it ended up being that way um, like I'm just not a New Year's person, New Year's resolution person in general, I would say. But yeah, it doesn't really frighten me that much anymore. I think the nature of great people is in, is in their actions and not just what they read. So like there's that line, you know, you can't just dream yourself in a character. You have to hammer and forge one yourself. And at some point, I think, you know, too much reading can just destroy people. Right. And I see that with a lot of my academic friends who like they leave the library and it's like they're just like, how do I function? Like, how do I get a bus ticket? How do I talk to people? And every other aspect of a life just goes by the wayside as they're like so consumed on one thing, which is fine. I mean, if you make the choice, but I think in the world of bits versus atoms, it's like when you want to do something in atoms, which I do want to do, then it's like, no, you have to understand all these massive issues at play. Like you have to understand how people work power like money finance technology like all these things come together when you're doing stuff on earth versus in computers what i'm struggling with the same thing to be honest so my background is in 
growth. I founded startups, grew startups. And so that could be categorized as doing, right? Executing, operating. But I started the, the newsletter, the podcast. I've been struggling with myself in, in the sense that there's a huge difference between uh, reading and writing uh, and operating and uh, balancing that out. Have you thought about that, like yourself? About balance? Yeah, like balance between the two, because you got to absorb, consume information, distill it, communicate, but then you have to execute, right? Otherwise, you can't function, as you said. Right. I think my views have graduated a bit because I think to write anything great, you have to spend a lot of time reading, especially in this market that we're in right now. Like, I would actually love to ask Ben Thompson, like, how much he reads per day. It's probably like his biggest job. My other uh brilliant friend Bern Hobart I mean he just reads like nobody I know and he has like one of the best newsletters out there highly recommend the diff but across my side I think a lot of the things that I'm unique in have been the combination like you said of of this action and of this reading because I think when I was growing up it was like entirely reading right I would just read all the time and I don't think I had anything that impressive about what I was doing but then I think you know, it is, it is really around like 18 to 20 when you decide to make your life path. And I actually think that a lot of the cards are settled and they're played in that moment because yeah, like that's really when you decide and people try to fight back to that time, even when they're older. But I think, yeah, your choices, especially early on shape you like decades later. Right. Yeah. So absolutely. decide to be, if you don't decide to just be like a go-getter and have that hustle, then you're always behind the eight ball. Do you have a process to manage all the information you consume? Like how do you pick books? How do you process them? Yeah, that's a good question. So I um, do, so I do some investing at this, at this venture capital firm called conversion capital. And, and that's a question that they ask a lot or like people ask like, Oh, how do you know this stuff? And I am proud that I have this greedy algorithm with books where I, at this point with video, especially like I have to watch everything like at 2XP just to just to feel interested again. But with books, I think I'm lucky where like I have done it so much now where I have no arrogance with like, you know, oh, like look at all my books, look at my bookshelf, you know, all these various ways that people take Instagrams and pictures of their books and stuff. So the way I find books, I think has been really in one older books that people are not talking about. I think there's a lot of alpha generation to have with books in general. Like there's a lot of good information that people aren't talking about and across a variety of disciplines hidden in the bibliographies of various books too. Like, oh, I wonder who inspired this person. And often it's literally writing style that could determine the quality of a book. Like Andrew Roberts, you know, anything he writes is just amazing. The famous historian, but you know, people now would talk about Leo Strauss, right? And that's like the huge mantra of our time. It's like everyone's talking about Leo Strauss. But to me, was all what was more important was like, who is this guy actually influenced by? Because I think it was Harold Bloom who said that, you know, Western civilization basically started and ended with Plato. No, it started with Plato and ended with Shakespeare. And there's some truth to that because of just how their vectors hit everything else, right? You could basically get a solid or actually more solid education from just reading everything that they did than spending 18 years of like uh, liberal education 
in, in a Western country, I think. Obviously, you need to do math and stuff, but I think those things are also overstated where it's like, we have a lot of people who know how to do math, but don't know how to think. And it's like, what would you rather have, right? I'd rather have people who could think and teach them math than have people who could do math and then teach them how to think. It's a lot harder to teach people to think, I guess. Yeah, you. I, I realize that a lot. Like, I have always gone back and forth of like, what do I think a smart person is? And to me, I think it's really ingenuity, right? I think when you call somebody smart, it is really this like perceived ingenuity of like, oh, you know, they might have a 150 IQ or whatever, but like in the moment, how fast can they just process information and pick it up? And so that's actually what IQ means. It's just dealing with abstraction and how good somebody is with dealing with abstraction. That's why they have all these various symbols and stuff. But you see it across life. Like I think how quickly somebody is at picking up new stuff and just getting going. And that's something that I've seen a lot more as I've been deeper in the trenches working. I think like how many, how many times do you have to say things differently for people to understand something before they can just get up and running and just go to, go to town. Is that how you operate? Just let's say you're presented with a problem. Like how do you go tackle that problem? Do you try to sort of, reason from first principles and just get it done? Or do you go out, let's say, and look for pre, like past sources, people who've done it before? Yeah, I think, you know, everyone now always talks about everything is from first principles. I think in some cases that makes a lot of sense. But in some other cases, like in these murky waters of like business, you start to wonder how much good is it starting from first principles? And Because if you do that in every field, you'll just never get anything done right. Like you, when people talk about reasoning from first principles, they mean finding a secret, which is like another rephrasement of that Peter Thiel analogy, right? Like, what is your secret that nobody else knows? And there could even be a thing in distribution, right? Maybe that first principles reasoning is the thing in distribution and that's what takes you to excellence. But in some businesses, you need more than one. And uh, where I currently work, Superpeer, we're lucky that, you know, we don't actually need really more than one miracle and every great business needs at least one miracle that's the thing whereas if you start to need five or six and you have to reason for first principles and everything i mean this is how you get like some of the biggest disasters of all time like theranos right they were trying to do this first principles thing across like basically everything but even apple started with you know one and then it was that one idea that led to the flywheel between all the other products and made it you know what is the most valuable company of all time? Yeah, I think the, the important thing is to recognize that not everything can or should be reasoned from first principles. Like some things are just yeah. counterintuitive you know, and you can't, you just right. can't get to sort of where you want to go by, by putting all the pieces together. You gotta you go somewhere and look Grupa's at the answer. Trilemma, basically. Have you heard I of don't. Trilemma? Basically it's the idea that when you keep saying why to anything, you'll end up in three various states. But basically the point is that you will just end up in this like infinite recursion across, across all these different things, right? Because that's what Gerdell came up with. It's the incompleteness theorem. And when I found it about a group as Trilemma and like when I was younger, I was like, wow, this is really that critique of pure reason, right? There are just some things that we cannot know no matter how much we try. Like if you keep asking why, you will probably go insane first. So this goes back to your point about reading the books, right? Because at some point, if you keep asking why, you will end up like like a William Shockley, just go insane. <laughs> or you will, as so many mathematicians and philosophers have, just end up like, you know, depressed in a ditch somewhere, just drinking themselves to death. 
so at some point you just have to be okay with with that uncertainty and you know dealing with this chaos and that's like i guess why i was always so interested in chaos theory because it seemed to just talk about everything in the world like we can't seem to know everything but we can model them pretty well and the point of doing all these things that we're doing is just so that your intuition gets a bit better but but like munger said you know if you get a bit better every day then suddenly things start to make sense and you can like deal with it but if you can't what do you say it's like you're one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest <laughs> i think that's a pretty good way to articulate it just try to make our intuition better uh, a bit every day uh, i think about it as sort of like my mental castle or my mental model or my mental map of the world but it's essentially the the same thing right um let's let's go back a bit to to the newsletter you you have a very unique writing style and i'm sure that's influenced by by everything you read but what's your writing process like and how have you developed that style over time yeah i was always writing so i think that's probably the one commonality i had through my education experience where i think i was just lucky to write early than anyone else and you know every chance i got i was i was trying to be get better and better and better but looking at the landscape now the thing that i missed is that people will always talk about one discipline and they'll be the tech person they'll be the business person they'll be the science person but there weren't many people talking about these things in conjunction with each other and that's kind of why i picked history technology and economics because like i doubt you'll find anyone else in that same sphere you know you have a lot of philosophy and technology you have a lot of you have a lot of economics and technology which is stratechery and probably yourself as well but i just see it as like i don't want to compete and i don't want to compete like i want to be my own niche and i write about things that i think make people at times feel a bit uncomfortable but i also know that and oftentimes it's the truth like you know there's a line you know three things can't stay hidden for long the sun the moon and the truth so if i don't write it somebody else is going to and i don't want that to happen i want to be like looking at it right in the face when when it when i see it what's the most uncomfortable thing you've written publicly ooh i mean the last piece i wrote about simulated memories that really triggered a lot of people like people are not happy with that because i basically put forth with uh, my friend Gabe Bladen who is the ceo of machine zone which is you know one of the biggest gaming companies of all time we wrote about and we talk about this about a lot about why the public internet especially now with the breakup of tiktok is the tiktok of the breakup of tiktok is essentially the harbinger of the death of the public internet and how that works now is what we're seeing where fake news doesn't just stop at fake news it's like a virus funny enough and it spreads into every facet of life so maybe 2020's real dilemma is not even the coronavirus it's actually the fake news which the history books of Duffy write about as deep fakes which i write about in the piece started from political photo montages that people would do and make fun of guys like hitler by combining graphic design and philosophy and politics into very realistic cartoons and you know they would show pictures of hitler like being like a greedy cunning con man essentially and to convince people right to persuade to ingest in anger they would do these things to convince people to be on their side in a very political fashion but it didn't stop there as we know in every era every mode of communication has been wrapped up in ideology uh, i think that's a very slavoj zizek point probably but in that sense he's probably right i think it 
colors everything that we do in every medium, the fraud has just picked up. Like it's just become harder and harder radio to later with the rise of the digital sphere and sector. And one of the things that I write about is like, Instagram is not unique in that way of making people feel terrible about themselves. I mean, Playboy did a lot with really institutionalizing this airbrush and models. Even before that, I mean, across any photo. So even when the photo medium come out, came out, it was only a few years later that people figured out how to manipulate these photos and do photo manipulation. So every medium that you see of communication has always been wrapped up in this ideology and this crafting of very specific events that people want you to believe. And that says a lot about history, right? Because that just that has happened in text, time memorial. It's just been hard to do that with video and pictures, but with higher bandwidth stuff, uh, because they're also more believable, right? But now you're seeing that even with, uh, I don't know if you saw The Last Dance, the documentary with Michael Jordan. Nope, I, I did not. I'm, I, I've been on a Netflix diet. Oh, okay. Um, it's, it's on Netflix now, actually. Well, what, what I mean is uh, I've been yeah, just you, yeah, avoiding yeah, yeah. Netflix. Yeah, oh, I just right. watch... Yeah, right, I just right, watch right. reruns of, of The Office to fall asleep and that's it. <laughs> Perfect. I mean, this one really, you know, when you talk about like making you, it's like just like the Elon Musk bar for you, right? It just makes you feel like you can you can go through a wall or something, give you that energy. But in as they were airing it, so it took place over 10 weeks. So they did an episode every, every week. Uh, State Farm did a commercial for the show and they basically used a deep fake. And after the fact, and it was like talking about, you know, the year 2020, and it was a picture and it was a video of, I think it was 1997 or something. That's when the documentary takes place. But it was like, oh, in 20 years, you know, in the year 2020, um, there will be a virus. It'll change everything, you know, and it starts to just list out all these things. And because it's so realistic, people believe it. And they're like, how did this guy know that? And they're like flaming up on Twitter. But then they were like, oh, guys, it's fake. And you should have seen people's reaction, right? They were just like destroyed. Like it's getting to the point where people literally cannot tell. And so eventually this is kind of where the title comes in of the simulated memories, which is that like arguably reality and our views of reality are already entirely different. But what do you do when literally everything that you consume is fake? Yeah. Well, because as the cost of doing that goes to zero, right? As the cost of making these fakes go, go away and it becomes easier and easier to use. I mean, like look at what's happening on Instagram and these other platforms where People have no issues editing their reality onto the actual reality. Like this ex post and making that how they actually appear, how they want others to see them. But when you do that with video, everything changes, right? It becomes like when you talk about VR, when you talk about any nature of a technological shift, like that's enough to destroy us low bandwidth creatures because video is the highest bandwidth that we have figured out. And we're not used to that. Humans don't know how to process that. Do you think that will change our relationship with information? Or do you think that will change our relationship with reality? I think it's already changed our relationship with reality. But with information, it's funny to me how it's like the gel-man amnesia effect, right? Where you know that the author is basically lying to you. And in this case, it was a journalist, right? Which you talk about, you flip the page, and then it's like, oh, new story. So when it's a story that you know a lot about, you know they're lying to you, but then you completely forget that when you go on to the next story. 
And it seems to be the case with information. Everyone talks about fake news, but who do they consume? Still the biggest players in media. So maybe it's that, but I can guarantee you at some point in the future when this is not figured out, I mean, content moderation for companies like Facebook is already impossible. So what do you do when you are pilfered from every side and pilloried with deep fakes in every scenario, right? I mean, how do you know, how do they know what is real and what's fake? I mean, this stuff came out in like 2017, so it hasn't been that long, but already it's not clear that they have any idea of how severe the situation could be. Well, they can't really moderate, let's say, harmful content. <laughs> Why they, could they moderate deep fakes? Like, what we're talking orders of magnitude more complex, right? Because Exactly. Yeah. So it's just going to be out there and it already is out there, but every year it's just going to get easier and easier and easier. And so I think even, was it yesterday? I found this company on Product Hunt that was doing like a deep fake audio simulator. So if you wanted to feel like Trump was talking to you, it could let you do that. And I think this is what really scares people about GPT-3, just how much faster than their own expectation it was moving. It was like they had their own internal Moore's law. And then this Moore's law is just like going beyond, above and beyond. Slowly then suddenly. Yeah, that was my feeling with GPT-3, like slowly then suddenly. So the end of the piece actually just kind of comes back just to finish it up. It just ends with like, we're just going to go back to these exclusive internet silos. Like the internet has never been broken up. But as we're seeing with China, I mean, China already did that. But for some reason, people didn't even think that it could happen elsewhere. But I think across the world, you're just going to see that as people want to retain their own culture and their own beliefs and their own propaganda, they'll go back to these very siloed bubbles of information because the internet doesn't let you do that, right? You could go and you could read about what's happening in Chile, Venezuela, Australia, but the leaders in those countries don't want you to. They don't want you to get involved. They don't want you to know what's happening. So it's actually in their best interest to kind of segment this out and kind of destroy the public internet in that way. Yeah, I was going to counter your, your earlier point of uh, one public internet, because what we really had is a Western internet, not a public exactly. internet, right? Exactly, um, no, exactly my point. We're starting to see that that fragmentation. Now, like even before talking about deep fakes and protecting sort of uh, geopolitical situations, like what Europe is doing, for instance, with regulation and moderation and, and copyright directive and all that stuff, and, and how that is sort of split, splinting or splitting the internet already into two or three pieces, right? So uh, I, 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 I don't know. I haven't played it so far ahead. Like hmm. I have thought about specific like country focused internets, but it could very well might be right. Like China is a country yeah. specific yeah. internet. Why not? Yeah. Right. That's what I mean. Why, why not? That is really the crux of the problem, right? When it doesn't seem like the marginal cost or cost for that matter, total cost is that high. Why would you not? Right? Why would leaders just not? I mean, that's kind of what the world is going to anyway. It's like, this is really the dire consequence for technology. It's as, because tech people, I think fundamentally, they don't understand political power. Like, I just don't think that they think it applies to them very much. But if this continues, like, they will do everything that they can to stop the rise of technology because it's completely orthogonal to what many of these quote unquote Western leaders actually want, right? If they want power and you don't understand power, it doesn't exist in a vacuum, as I've written about a bunch. You will have somebody who takes it, and then what do you do? 
like how do you fight back as europe is seeing now like when you just say yes you say yes say yes it's like if you don't stand for something you'll fall for everything and that's kind of what a lot of europe is seeing right now yeah well two things to that so the first one is tech people i think they are rebels right and rebels don't really want power but at the end of the day by definition of rebels if they are successful they get it which is let's say uh, mark zuckerberg and i think it's important to make a distinction on how we define power is that political power because i know trump or macron like they have political power but i'd argue that mark zuckerberg is far more powerful than those of course two guys. i think i think an absolute power yes but in political power which in places like california have almost destroyed the state right and that's kind of probably the distinction i was going for yeah i completely agree zuckerberg is perhaps one of the most powerful people in the history of the world but at the same time is that power enough to save Palo Alto? No, because in different circumstances, it's instantiated differently, right? So ideally that power is fungible, but in our case, especially in America, it's not in a lot of the world, it's not like, you know, we're still struggling to make ends meet in the Bay Area. Like Peter Thiel had that line, right? Is tech enough to save California? Is it enough to save America? It's not even enough to save like the municipality of San Francisco. And that's kind of what I see, like, you made all this money, but when you don't understand power and you become a political power, I should say, and you become a politically powerless state, all these regulations just creep on each other. They just slowly clamber up like rot. And until that point, then you just need to do the amputation. And that's what people prefer to do. I'm not, I want to be optimistic, but it's like, we've had people have all this power, but it's like, for what end, right? Like Lyndon Johnson, as you brought up, I mean, he was probably the de facto example of using power for what he believed was right. Whether you could say that's good or bad, I mean, that's up to many historians and all those people in the decades after, but you couldn't have said that he didn't know how to use power, right? That's the one thing you cannot say about the guy, that he understood it probably better than anybody else before or after. Yeah, yeah. Like speaking of Lyndon Johnson and, and Caro and, and Robert Moses, actually, like right. those guys and then Caro's writing, like, that's a the perfect example of the, the accumulation of power and, and and how you can actually unbundle power from money at least on a personal wealth right. side um right so because yeah like they used money to generate power but not personal money no that's exactly what i mean actually it's that they understood power and they understood how to use it whereas if you gave a lot of these people for example that i'm surrounded with in the bay area power it's not clear that they would know what to do with it right? Like what would be your ranked order preferences? And those are the questions that I'm very interested in answering. Like if you do get it, like be careful what you wish for, right? <laughs> be very careful because when you do, it's, it's like that, uh, you know, the sword of Democles where it's the king who's trapped underneath that sword over its neck and any mistake you do, it just ends up with your life in peril. And that's kind of what we're seeing across the Western world, right? Any action you take, if you're an iconoclast like Trump or Boris, you know, the crowd will just destroy you. Let's switch lanes a bit. Well, it's not really switching lanes, but I'd love to talk a bit more about the podcast, Conservative Curious. So you mentioned somewhere that you are essentially uncovering and connecting niche thinkers. Why do you think that's important and how the podcast came to be? Yeah, so we started off with physical events and 
the Bay Area is not exactly a place that, for how much people say about how much has helped them, it's really lost that friendly vigor and community over time, as people see it as much more a transient state. One of these pieces that I wrote for Othwart magazine, Othwart mag on Twitter basically, was about golden ages in cities. And San Francisco should have been that beautiful city on a hill that people would look to. But in reality, it was successful in spite of itself, right? As many people tried to do everything they could to destroy it, it was still successful financially, just in the financial sense. But as we saw with the community, it was like people were just treated as like a college town, as a university town, and they would do their two years and leave. And I, like I said, knew that this wasn't going to be around forever, right? I would one day tell my kids about like, you know, this was there and then it wasn't. Maybe it will. I hope I'm completely wrong. I think I'm way more optimistic, but that is a possibility. You can't discount that as a possibility. And so it was like, how do we capture this feeling that is there in this physical form that nobody else is doing? And so that's how these physical events started. And we've had a lot of success. I mean, we had like Michael Gibson, who started the Teal Foundation, speak with a lobbyist for the U.S. Tech Workers Administration and talk about like, you know, has has America's view of high-skilled immigration really hurt domestic workers and things like that, which people don't want to talk about. And it's in these areas of gray areas that I feel like you need these people. It's because in, that's exactly what's a gray area, right? We need to come out and establish what those mean and how we deal with them. So I was like, if I'm not going to do it, you know, if not me, if not us, then who, right? It's not clear that anyone else, markets I don't believe are that efficient anyway. So I doubt anyone else would do it. And yeah, people seem to really enjoy it. We brought together great crowds of people and we hope to do it when everything is back up and running, maybe with masks, because that's just the culture. But yeah, I think that was a great stepping point in like making what we see is like the San Francisco Soho House. You mentioned something but, interesting. But the podcast, right? I don't think I answered. I don't think I answered that part. So the podcast ended up just becoming that where all these conversations we would have with people, I, in my head was like, I would, I really enjoy just the serendipitous nature of the internet. You know, I just enjoy like the amount of friends I met. That's actually probably my go-to method now of meeting people. It's like over Twitter or something. Um, because I find that when people already read your stuff, the people that would even do that. And when I do that to people as well, it's like, those are the people you just get along with anyway. So it's like a really great forcing function there. But the podcast is just that at a higher bandwidth, I think. Like really digging deep. And the amount of people who've come out of the woodwork and have been huge supporters has been awesome. Like nothing I've seen, you know. So even if one person, I think, took away that I could do a lot more with my ambition, with the people that I'm meeting, if I could just level up and go into hyperdrive, I would feel very happy with myself. And I think we've done that. Yeah, the the podcast is a forcing function for for me as well. Like essentially everything I put out there is a forcing function for me for a bunch right. of different things. So right. you're watched, think, right? That's what people don't know. It's a call option on your own life. Like my yeah. good friend Janie, who has like one of the best blogs on um, automation, self-driving cars, you know, really genius guy. He was just graduated his MBA, started writing on the internet because he met guys like Chris Dixon and Josh Kushner and all these people. And um, yeah, that was it. I never thought I'd get to meet him or talk to him. And it really shaped a lot of my views. Just like this guy with a blog, you know, predicted a lot of the future of self-driving and that stuff. And it was like, he was like, that's just the best career decision I've ever done. And that led to a lot of his future success. But yeah, I just kind of stood on the shoulders of giants. I'm just like, what's the next step? And 
you know, we didn't come in with such high expectations, but I think people have kind of blown us away a bit and they've really enjoyed it. So probably same for you, right? I don't think you must have expected, like, must have imagined the kind of press you'd get. And like, I'm sure people really enjoy your podcast as well, right? So. Oh, oh no, like, no way. I, I started about a year and a half ago. And I, at first I just had like a few friends uh, and, <laughs> and my mom just subscribed to, to the newsletter. And I never thought, I, I still don't understand why people read what I write. I, I genuinely don't, but still people do. And, and as you said, they, they, they come out of, out of nowhere. And in, in my case, they listen to my stuff, they, they read to my stuff, they read my stuff, they, they pay me money and they, the, the, by, by, the, by paid subscriptions, I mean, and they essentially, they reach out to me like saying, hey, this was super helpful. This was great. I'm, I, I still get this imposter syndrome i don't know it's something I'm, I'm struggling with to be honest yeah no completely like i still feel that you know whenever I, I see that a lot with a lot of my friends actually where they're like success just doesn't even last for a minute anymore for them and it's like it's always wondering what could go wrong what's next what do i have to do like how do i do better next time how do i fix the mistakes but I think the biggest lesson of doing anything and creating the activity of creation is like, you have to just think about it. And that's the biggest thing that I think people don't do. They're just so set on this like tracked path. But when the good things happen, you should just be self-aware, right? It doesn't last. It may, could last forever, might not, but whatever you do, you have to enjoy the journey. And I think that's the part, that's why people get so cynical, right? I think it's probably because they just never took the joy, time to enjoy whatever success they had. Yeah, yeah. It, it all comes down to, to what you just said and what you mentioned in the beginning, which is enjoying the journey because it's 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 cliche, but it's the journey, right? Not the destination. Right. Yeah, every, like hard way. Yeah, like arriving to the destination is literally a second. Cool, you arrived. Like the, the the act of getting somewhere, and then you're already there. That's it. So yeah, I, I've been thinking about that and trying to optimize for the the journey, but we'll see. Maybe I'm just uh, an idiot. With a newsletter, huh? So, no, uh, <laughs> doing anything that is sufficiently unique should. I actually think about it now with my writing, where it's like if I don't make people incredibly happy and incredibly angry, I've done something wrong. Because you know what they say, right? Good ideas, you have to force them down people's throat. This is why, also in Silicon Valley, no one signs NDAs, right? It doesn't make sense. It's like if it is sufficiently good enough and you're sufficiently unique, people will probably hate you like people will just hate your guts but and they'll tell, tell you that that's not true right it just cannot be true but that's actually how you know you're in this, on the cusp of something good i think that you've hit a sore point and you hit a gray area in society that you know you could optimize a bit for yeah well i, I think the key is not to optimize for let's say controversy but rather those stuff <laughs> that lead to controversy because otherwise exactly. like it's it's super exactly. easy to piss people off point. right yeah, I, I could just be an asshole on Twitter and I'd, I'd piss people off. That's super easy. Oh, right. But you'd probably just get mostly hate, right? You'd probably just get 99% of hate. or Mostly, but there are some people who like that, right? So you eventually attract, like, it's the internet, right? You get billions of people. There are, there's, I'm probably, or I'm sure there's a niche of people who actually enjoy watching assholes be assholes. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, but I always characterize that as like, you know, that line of like the short term versus the long, the finite versus the infinite game, right? Like what game are you playing? And so the 
leeway that you get from being an asshole is very short, I think, especially nowadays, right? Like you have to choose your battles very carefully. And that's a pain for someone like me where I was like, I just feel it in me. You know, there's that one comic, I think uh, XKCD, which is like, mom, someone's wrong on the internet. <laughs> and you have to like, you know, like give me some time. I'm just like fighting back. And I luckily was never super big into that. But in my mind, I was just like, I just have to do something. But over time, it's like, if I have this line, which is like, you know, you can negotiate desire. So you can negotiate the desire of people to like you. You can negotiate the desire of them hating you. And so all you can do is just be content with whatever you're doing at the time, right? Just stop stop having all this judgment on what you think things have to be, what they should be. Yeah, and I think compartmentalizing is, is another aspect of that, right? Like the biggest destruction I see, especially in tech, is how people let all these online comments just run their life. <laughs> yeah, Which is, uh, it seems so trivial, but it's it's like, I mean you see it with Elon and he goes after these short sellers and makes them lose their jobs. Like you see it with financial hedge fund managers. Like someone says anything bad about them, they have to sue them. And you're like, for what, right? Is this really the best use of your time? But yeah, like we said, right. That's a public internet. So it's public internet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, why the name of the podcast? Yeah. So conservative curious was not exactly planned. So it came from the physical events that we we're doing, but you know, we were had a lot of in-depth discussions on like, should we change the name? But I would say that neither Jessica, my podcast partner, and I are like conservative. We have conservative in the name to act as like a filter for people who are very one-sided in their beliefs. And you have names like the Cato Institute, like the Berger and Institute, all those things, the Martin Center, whatever. And they don't actually mean anything, right? You can eventually have like people who sneak in and they try to ruin the organization from the inside from the get-go we're like if the name triggers you don't listen to it like just you don't need to be involved we have enough people who do and who like it so yeah we not the exact name i imagined for doing a podcast but in hindsight the filtering i think has made it so that we have a thousand just get those a thousand true fans right who would like us under whatever name we did no, I, I think that's a, that's a good uh, framework or heuristic for a bunch of different things. So my, my background is in growth and sort of the intuitive thing to, to think about just growing a company is to get as many people on the funnel as possible. And that's not right in most cases, right? So if you sort of add a filter for something, then you'll end up talking or attracting the right kind of people. Um, so don't go broad, go deep, I guess. Um, how do you... Jessica and you meet. Yeah, she actually hit me up over Twitter because she read my blog. I had a blog at the time and I was writing about a bunch of edgy stuff. And she was like, oh, you should come to our meetup. And so we had a meetup and it had some of the really talented people that I saw online at this. And she had a really good eye for finding people. You know, I wasn't there all the time, so I can't, I can't take a lot of the credit. But even before, I knew it was something that she was doing and she's not the type of person to give up. And yeah, you know, I th thought there was something there. And I thought that this is what the world needs more of. And so, so far it's been great. Like so far it's been like an overwhelming turn of events because we've had people come out of the woodwork to help us sponsor us, help us out in any way they could. And they didn't have to, but I think that kind of happens when like people see, you know, there's such a class of people that are underrepresented in their thoughts. And if you kind of act as like their own paladin, it's like, wow, 
like, you know, somebody actually cares. And there's so many people who I think think the same way as us, but they just had no platform to do that on. And nor did they probably want to take on the risk. But yeah, people have said like, oh, you're like overly political. We're like, we don't talk about politics. Like <laughs> if you even watch one episode, you'd listen to that, right? Like, you know, like our city conversation is entirely about the theory and function and philosophy of cities and how they continue not like, you know, how do we make New York better, right? In like a Democrat versus Republican conversation when we wanted to be evergreen. We really wanted to be episodes and content that you could listen five years later, like some of the Tim Ferriss ones, and you're still like, wow, you know, this guy nailed it, right? And that's what the decade in the wilderness gets you. It's like, you have to just spend that much time really working and honing and thinking and trying different things, experimenting to get it done. Let's go back to something you mentioned a few times already, and I'm, I was going to skip it, but I think we, we should talk about it. And you mentioned the, you, you just said most people won't do it or won't risk it. And, and before you, you mentioned about people not talking about the gray areas. Uh, why do you think people online or offline, but mostly online, they just stick to their lanes and just not deviate from the mainstream conversation? Like, why don't we explore more gray areas? I think people they let other people tell them what they're good at. And until they have that validation, they don't think they can actually explore those areas. This is the other point that I made up about like so many of the most interesting aspects of life. Nobody can teach you. Like we always, I'm against that entire idea of like mentorship. Like I think mentorship and advice more generally when you're doing something unique is kind of overrated, right? Like how much can they tell you that you can't read about that you can't figure out that you've personally explored like nobody knows your journey as well as you do nobody knows my journey as well as i do and in that frame it's like with my own ambition some people just don't think you can do it because they can't do it and that happened to me so much i think in all the various things i've done where like people have their own expectations of themselves that they put on you like i, I don't think i can do it so therefore you can't do it but people have no idea how to price and persistence right that's the one great thing and i think that's one of the things that I like to think about myself is that like, I just don't quit. Like I will just keep going. Like I'll just do the same thing. If it works, I'll just, I will just do the same thing forever. Right. And find new ways to make that unique and to go after that because yeah, you know, some people, some people have various addictions. My, my thing is really in finding one of my addictions is in finding those amazing people I think who make life way more enjoyable and bringing them together and, yeah, letting other people see that magic, right? People always talk about the seniors, but it's like we're we're in that renaissance of intellectual thought right now, and there's so much that goes by the wayside. And we interviewed this guy, Ryan Peterson, who is resident buyer on Twitter, was a freshman at UChicago. But when you read his stuff, you know, no one would have taken him seriously. But I think, like, I always try to find information, like I said, that no one else is talking about. Like, what are what what are people not thinking? And reading his stuff, I was like, wow, this guy... I have no idea how old he is, but he seems young and, you know, is exactly the type of person that like I would get along with. So yeah, that was one of our best episodes to date. Right. And super amazing guy, super smart on top of it, but not many people would have given him a chance. And we were the first podcast, I think, to take him on, but it's in things like that, that kind of make it worth it. Right. Like how do we get people like that to get the audience that they deserve? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like, finding underrated or underheard talent is it's one of the skills I tried to cultivate. You were mentioning addictions. What's sort of the combination of addictions that make you exceptional or 
I'm not sure if exceptional is the word you sort of think of yourself, right? But what's that unique combination of addictions that make you who you are? Yeah, I don't know about exceptional, but I think I think I'm unique in some ways. I think the thing that makes me unique is that, well, the persistence is one, but that's not enough. I think I think it's also that I can't really stand for surface explanations. Like when you when you do all this stuff and like I started working really young, I started writing really young. I always had way older friends and that level of thought, I think of the things that certain people can tell you that people can't tell you makes you always want to dig deeper underneath the surface. And if they're just like, you know, like giving you like a cop-out answer, right? I know some people are okay with that. That for me is not. And I think that's probably what started the writing, right? At least on my side. But I was like, that's not a sufficient explanation to encompass whatever's going on and to take that even as a distant observer, you can see that you can kind of get the feel that someone's lying to you. And to me, I don't want that to be the case. I really want to see everything. And what else? Yeah, I think I also balanced that. So Michael Gibson, when he came on our podcast, talked about this thing called the alpha gamma quality, which is that there's this unity of opposites that you need in making any exceptional work happen. So uh, the alpha gamma quality arises from, you know, the Oxford grading system where some essays would have some brilliant stuff, but also some really stupid stuff. So they'll give you an alpha gamma. And in life, you see that a lot where it's like people who are just so exceptional at one thing, they're just amazing, right? And everything else they suck at. So it's like, when you think about people, I think my skill was like hiring for strength, like being around people for their strengths, not for the weaknesses, right? Like no matter what their faults were. I mean, obviously there's a line, but in most cases it's like, I want the people I'm with to be better than me. Like I honestly do really crave that feeling of like, wow, I am, I need to work to get better to, to be around these people. And it shows up in every aspect of your life. Like it shows up in your health, your fitness, intelligence, ambition. So yeah, I think I was lucky to not be insecure enough to, to let that get to me of just being around better people. And the other thing is that, you know, like Josh Wolf says, I have a complete knack for avoiding boring people to avoid boring people, which you can take in both respects, right? You could yeah. take, yeah. So I think all of those together, it's the knowledge, the quest for interesting behavior in people and the relentlessness, I think. What have you changed your mind about recently after the beginning of the surface? Ooh, um, what have I changed my mind a lot? A lot. I always make it a point to change my mind, actually. A few things. Well. I guess I guess one of them is that in in more recent times I've kind of had some hesitation with reading itself like I'm like you know people are like oh I never read I'm a proud non-reader of books when I was younger I would just completely like laugh at that and and now I'm thinking like some of these people are like some of the most interesting thinkers I've ever met and they don't read stuff I mean they read of course but they're not reading books they're like you know really spending a lot of time alone doing a variety of stuff but they're not really consuming stuff and that kind of blew me away a bit because you know me and probably you just like loving you're probably introverted as well i can imagine and at times right like you definitely need some quiet time i can guess that but if that's the case then you're like wow you know maybe i need to be really spending my time finding that one original idea instead of just going after like 20 different ideas, but really spending that time honing down on one, like being a hedgehog instead of a fox. 
as people say. The other thing I changed my mind about is, so, oh, I don't know how much I can say about this, but I think when I was younger, at least, I didn't even think that like we needed these organizations like the CIA, like these extrajudicial like you know, organizations that do this stuff. But now the more, the more I read into it and the more that I talk to people, I've, I've had a few friends in the service actually, and like talking to them, it's very clear that like people, if they knew to the extent of how much danger there still is in this world, you would not have that opinion. Like these things are way more important than people think, especially in times of like crisis as we see. And I mean, the CIA started as the OSS in the midst of, you know, the second world war and like in that time frame, obviously. And yeah, if anything, it's just become more and more important, right? Like the nature of surveillance in the state have become one and the same. And that's a question that I go back and forth on a lot. Like how much surveillance do we need? And have we already given up all our rights, basically? And after the coronavirus, will we give up all of our health rights too? You know, that's, that's very scary to me. But I think those are the questions that we should be asking, right? Like how much is okay? What are you not scared about? Oh, what am I not scared about? Well, most things, I think, like, most things are not particularly frightening to me. I think it's mainly, what am I not scared about? I'm not scared about economics, be, ec- economists being right. That's probably <laughs> as an economics myself. But no, I, I think this is also the problem with writing so much is that you start to realize, like, oh, if I was in this situation, what could I do? Like, how could I? like do damage in this or how could I just, you know, do something and you read Lyndon Johnson, you're like, wow, somebody had this power, they could really go up and after it. But no, you know, arguably like probably the most frightened person in our time is Elon Musk, right? (laughs) (laughs) You could probably make that case that like the man is just afraid of everything. Yeah. Right. Like, oh, AI is going to kill us. Yeah. You know, we're going to kill ourselves. That's why we have to get off space. Like all these things, you know, driving will kill us. All those things that happen, but I'm always wondering, like, what what is it that drives certain people, right? Like, one of my friends and I had this discussion of, you know, we succeed in spite of emotion, not because of it. And I think about that a lot. And I went back and forth on that a bit, too. Like, it's not actually this deep-seated trauma that makes entrepreneurs amazing, but they actually succeed in spite of that. Like, they were just talented. And because they need a story, right? They need a story for every biography. They're like, oh, this happened to them. And then, you know, whether it's Rockefeller having a bad dad, Carnegie being an immigrant when he's like 15, Musk having a bad dad. It's like, aren't all of those things overdetermined? Like, could you not have said that about any of the other million kids who had those same situations and didn't achieve the same success? We always construct these narratives. And one of my favorite questions sort of to kick off a conversation is, like, let's say I want to talk to you about your company, right? And and you pitch your company a million times but i what i usually like to ask is like what's a non-bs like non-pr version of how something happened because mm. there's a lot more to it that exactly the i don't know the new york times story but let me sort of rephrase my last question like what's it's not about being scared it's it's about being optimistic so mm. what's your biggest source of optimism right now oh that's a good one yeah that's better way to rephrase it. My biggest source of optimism would, would be that we're actually seeing breakthrough progress in a lot of these hard sciences that I think people don't want to talk about. Like I spend a lot of time in the longevity space talking to people and helping out. You know, I'm super excited about what people are doing. And 
that aging could actually be solved in our lifetime, right? Like that makes me super excited for the future. The other thing is like all the city stuff and, and building these charter cities across the world. Like I think that's completely vital for human progress and flourishing. And people have no idea how much is happening underneath their feet. So yeah, it's never a good thing to short human ingenuity. Like that would have been just probably the worst short of all time. But even though we're not seeing that same progress in much of technology and across these various aspects of like space, computation biology, city building and charter cities, you're really seeing this renaissance take place. I think that's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, Annie, for coming over. It was a pleasure. Yeah, it's been. Hey, this is Gons again. If you enjoyed this episode of the Seed Table Podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to SeedTable.com. SeedTable is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.